Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it is your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, friend. Hope you're having an, an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. Every single episode, you get that bonus greeting. So it's a no-brainer. You got to sign up. You got to uh, become a subscriber. I am here today with my good friend, the man, Eric Young. Uh, how you doing, Eric? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So super excited to get you on. Your book just came out, uh, Declaration of Independence. And um, today we're going to kind of talk about the book, talk about your journey through writing it and some of the takeaways. Um, you know, it's not like every day that a book comes out in the compliance game that I think kind of encapsulates both aspects of the job, both, you know, the hard part of it, uh, the objective part, uh, the frameworks, all that kind of stuff, but also the soft part of it, the experience and uh, the journey through through compliance. And your book, uh, you know, really addresses both of those those uh, those pieces really well. And like I said, Thank super you. excited to get you on. Let's just start kind of big picture. Tell us about what motivated you to write the book, and then we can get into like the thesis of the book. Well, I've always wanted to to write a book because, in many ways, it's never dull. It's it can be incredibly fun and and passionate. And like a TV series, you can't make some of this stuff up. And, and so <laughs> throughout my career, I, I've always wanted to kind of take note and ultimately translate the, them into lessons learned. So it, it was not intended to be a tell-all uh, in terms of the negatives. It was really, if it was negative, what did I learn from it? What can compliance and more importantly, organizations learn from some of these challenges? Because that's often what compliance has to do is address challenges. So your career, which we'll get into, um, you know, a little bit deeper as we start talking, but at a high level was sort of focused in, um, in the financial, in the financial, you know, realm. And, you know, because you graduated college so early, you really started at the Fed at like 20 and you really were able to pack a ton of massive experience within, you know, what is a pretty long career. And you're still a young guy. I think you're, I, I thought you were a millennial until I read the book. So, <laughs> so I am a millennial. <laughs> yeah. You're an honorary one, if not an actual one. There you go. <laughs> so um, let's just dive into it. You know, you use this. So before we dive in, let me start here. Uh, you're somebody that I've learned a lot from. I've really, um, you know, I value our relationship a lot. And you're somebody who really kind of resonated with me a lot. Um, so you're somebody in this market uh, or in this marketplace that I think is kind of unique. You know, you're obviously an uh, in, in august sort of uh, compliance officer, but you have this other sort of artistic side and you post your paintings and your uh, pastels. And I saw throughout, you know, that usually is rooted in like a, a high level of openness from a personality trait. And I saw throughout your openness, uh, your creativity in the book in terms of the analogies you drew and the pictures you painted. And I think one that carries through throughout the book is this, this analogy of Plato's cave and how it applies to compliance. Why don't we start there? Because I think that really does frame out a lot of what, what you attack in the book. Absolutely. Um, so Plato wrote this allegory is called Allegory of the Cave, and it's about two folks, two or more folks that are shackled, they're imprisoned, and all they see are shadows that are emblazoned on a wall with a, a, a large fire behind them, which is being controlled by uh, individuals, let's call them 
the CEO, the CFO, sometimes the general counsel, so that the employees who are shackled or compliance officers or even the board of directors only see what is being controlled by the CEO, the CFO. And the allegory goes on to say that that's the reality to the people that are imprisoned until one person, I call it the CCO, the chief compliance officer, escapes, gets outside, is blinded a bit by the sunlight, but then sees the beauty as well as the ugliness of the world because it is pretty and ugly uh, outside. But that's the reality, it's beyond the shadows. So the CCO returns, wants to uh, unshackle the board of directors and the employees, which include whistleblowers, by the way, to highlight the reality as opposed to the shadows. The shadows are the short-term profit maximization and the share price. And that's the myopia that corporate C-suites have. The reality is society, community, climate, employee safety. These are the longer-term stakeholders or otherwise known as ESG. So Plato's allegory of the cave, I thought was a perfect way to start the story, start the book, and then get into details after that. Because thematically, you're absolutely right. That's that's the uh, the message. So let's 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 double click on that analogy a little bit. Um, you talked about the shadow casters are the CEO, the CFO. Uh, perhaps it's the general counsel who are sort of controlling the reality that everybody's living in and experiencing. And you kind of refer to this as this short-term profit uh, focus or this sort of myopic drive at profits. And later on in the book, you make the point that this focus leads to like repeated compliance, cultural and internal control blowups. How does that end up happening? Or how does this, how does the shadow casting or the shadows that folks are watching that short-term focus end up leading to these more systemic issues in your experience? So one, for one thing, talk is cheap. CEOs will message uh, through uh, their annual reports or public enforcement actions and the press releases saying, we'll never do this again. And I do talk about deferred prosecution agreements as well, which are essentially formal promises to remediate and so that things will never happen again. But there's pressure on the CFO, the CEO to maximize profits uh, from shareholders themselves. It's, it's, it's the classic uh, capitalism, which of course is, is uh, important. But with COVID, with the pandemic, uh, the paradigm has changed to the extent that what about the safety of the employee and the community and, and the society? And I, I think that's why I wrote the book also for millennials and Gen Zs, because the mindset of those, your generation, our generation is is uh, to to think profit is good, safety is better, um, integrity of the markets is better, um, protecting the customer is better, and otherwise, if it's this short term myopia, the same mistakes keep happening over and over. And I give many examples, including a dedicated chapter to that, where there are direct quotes from management saying themselves that profit is, is too much the focus, we're not gonna do this again. And um, ultimately, unless you have an enterprise-wide program that thinks longer term, like a chess game, 
you're going to keep making the same mistakes over and over. And we see that. Yeah. Yeah. We do see that. And that's, you know, one of the biggest frustrations I hear from ethics and compliance professionals who feel like their wheels are spinning or they can't gain purchase in their organization. They feel like they're pushing a string up the hill and they're fighting against city hall, so to speak, because the tone at the top or the view at the top is again, you know, the lip service is, Oh yeah, of course my people are important. Of course, safety is important. Uh, but the actions sort of, at least indicate a different prioritization, which is usually this exactly. problem thing. Um, we'll get into this. Uh, well, maybe we'll just get into it now. What would you tell somebody who's at an organization like that, that, you know, has that kind of a focus? Do you think there's any hope to help turn some of those light bulbs on? Or do you think it's really like, you know, a, uh, you know, like How a, do we a losing proposition or something? Yeah. For one thing, I give a lot of credit to the regulators themselves, uh, whether it be the Justice Department with their June 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance program, where they have three essential questions. And the most important one is, is the compliance program really working? So it's not just whether it's effective as a point in time, but how sustainable is that program? Because oftentimes you get it to a point of effectiveness so that the the monitor or the remedial action or the enforcement action is lifted and the spotlight goes away, but then suddenly management gets back to maximizing profits. Oh, we don't have to worry about compliance anymore. So one, it's that mindset is whether there's a a flashing spotlight on or not, compliance should be embedded into the day-to-day activities, not necessarily just because there's remediation. Second, um, Regulators, enforcement actions should be lessons learned. Uh, oftentimes, regulators said, will ask, could it happen at your organization? Boards of directors should be asking management the exact same question. Hey, this happened at uh, ABC company. We're in a similar industry or we want to get into that industry what do we have in place to prevent these types of headlines? Because it's the reputational headlines that are more damaging, more expensive, ultimately, even in the short run, as the share price plummets. Um, so, so can it happen here? Oftentimes, the really large or successful organizations will say, it can never happen here because we're XYZ company. Uh, we're so good, or we don't have to worry about it, or we'll just write a check. Right. Um, which leads to an interesting thing, which you bring up um, in the book about this, how so many of these penalties end up kind of seeming like a cost of doing business. <clears throat> you gave one example, and there are dozens and maybe thousands of examples of somebody hitting, you know, getting a massive fine that to me and you seems like a big number, and then you look at their at their 10K, and you're like, oh, that's like a quarter's of profit or something like it's not it's not it's not it doesn't sting that bad so it leads to folks thinking like all right well this is just the cost of doing business it's it's more worth it for us to play fast and loose and have to pay a fine every 10 years or something it's 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 a bizarre uh, incentive structure absolutely and 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 that's why I, i do go in both parts one and parts two of a bit of the history not only in terms of deregulation, but the outcome of deregulation gone wild, if you will, to the extent that that's where the misconduct occurs. That's where the desperation because of fierce competition competition occurs, where the financial statements are manipulated. It all, it all is driven by corporate culture. And 
part of the lesson learned, if you will, is companies not only can afford to pay these penalties and uh, outlive, if you will, the headline, which will last you know, months, maybe sometimes years for some organizations because it keeps happening. But what's missing is the fear factor, the accountability of the CEO, the C-suite, because they know they're insured through DNO insurance. They, they know that they're less accountable, if accountable at all, for their not only their actions, but their inactions. And they know that they're being sheltered by the board, sheltered by compliance that are two or three levels below as the full person, I hate to say, because uh, it's convenient. Yeah, it's like they got a built-in scapegoat or they got a built-in fall guy in that in that chief compliance officer. And just that's such an interesting, you know, from a game theory standpoint, it's such an interesting um, dynamic that this DNO insurance actually sort of kind of promotes more more malfeasance because there's not a lot yes. of downside for guys. Exactly, exactly. And um, you'll find, I don't think I, I kept it in the book, but there were instances where when a major law was passed, um, suddenly the states amended their laws to protect their boards of directors even more by providing more DNO insurance or carving out directors from personal liability. That doesn't solve the problem necessary. No. That just insulates exactly as what you're saying is it reinforces the problem. Yeah, and you talked about how... Um you know, back in the day and, you know, kind of leading up to the seventies, there was this dynamic of, you know, this kind of like uh, old boys club, you get this cushy kind of board of directors job. And uh, to the extent that regulations at some level have made, you know, have kind of threatened the cushiness of that job, you get this counteracting of additional, you know, what you're talking about that, you know, it's like there's almost things being done to try to keep it more cushy and take more responsibility off of this role that is meant yes. to be oversight and meant to be asking those questions. Could it could it, could it happen here? And you would think uh, they would probably be the most adept at understanding the indirect relationships that exist within this complex system that is their business. The fuel of which is usually usually culture and the the malfeasance usually stems out of what that culture piece is. Do you feel like boards are starting to get that light bulb turned on with respect to like the importance of culture? And if not, what do you think is going to take us to, to bridge that chasm? So slowly but surely, yes. First, starting with uh, diversity and inclusion, because um, as you diversify your boards, uh, whether it be gender or, uh, or color or whatever the case may be, Diversity, that creates diversity of thought. Yeah. That creates more accountability on management because it's not that groupthink, if you will, or that uh, the lemming herd mentality uh, analogy that I gave uh, in one of my chapters, because otherwise everyone does fall off the cliff. Um, slowly to the extent that later on, I also recommend that it's not just diversity in the visible ways, but it's also diversity of skill sets right. and not enough skills around risk and compliance are on the boards. There's plenty of financial experts because audit committees by law have to have financial expertise, but there's not yet someone that pebble in the shoe, as I like to say, and you'll probably hear me say that more, of, of challenging management from a risk and compliance point of view, which is not the same as financial risk. Um, that's where more work needs to be done. Um, 
at the board level. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, I've been in a lot of board meetings when we're, there's talk of an acquisition or there's talk of a, of a strategic investment. And boy, the board really rolls their sleeves up there and we dive into the numbers and you really, there's a, there's a comfortability in sort of pushing against the assumptions that could lead to sort of financial risk. Obviously, a business is, you know, a multi-factor equation and there's a ton of other risks that are maybe less tangible or less directly tied to dollars or whatever. Um, and yet they seem to be less interested in that stuff. They're not self-selecting to your point, people that have that compliance background or that risk background um, to make sure that the team, the board of directors, that that team that they're fielding has the, the complementary skill sets and the complementary uh, backgrounds to really get to the right answer. It's just a, it's a bizarre blind spot that seems to be extremely pervasive. It is. And I, I used to watch the, I hate to call it the body language of, of directors, um, not to psychoanalyze them, but just to kind of see, on the one hand, it's a good thing to see the camaraderie either amongst the directors because they've been together for years, some right. of them, but also be, the camaraderie with management. Is there kind of that he healthy tension there? And oftentimes it's not that they go out to dinner together. They probably play golf together. I'm generalizing, but right. My point is, it's too comfortable still. Um, and if you look at the major boards, how many are diverse in reality versus right. diverse in surface, so to speak. So there is more work to be done. And just just to kind of navel gaze a little, what do you think is going to be the catalyst? Like at some point, presumably, hopefully, this isn't going to be an issue anymore. Right now, it still is an issue. What do you think that tipping point is going to be for this to really, for us to really start making some changes at this really important level of a company? I, I would say, say- You can't say your book. You can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I, I, I would say <laughs> it's inevitable that there's gonna be another major headline, uh, whether it be the technology companies. And we see Europe, the European regulators are being uh, incredibly aggressive mm -hmm. in terms of privacy, in terms of competition. And I frankly applaud them for that, uh, not because it's big tech, but because they're showing some teeth uh, as they should. Um, I think depending on you know the outcomes of certain elections over the next two to four years, um, we may see more uh, teeth in enforcement mm -hmm. as, as we're beginning to see. Um, I use and, and invoke Elizabeth Warren and some of her proposed legislation to hold management more accountable. Mm -hmm. Some of that legislation in some form or another, I think should uh, pass to, to make management think twice because writing a check is very easy. It's great, uh, the economy is still booming and profits are being maximized, but the question is, what's the end game? Um, is it to, because costs are being slashed, including risk and compliance right. functions, or we're really being innovative and creating a lot of revenue, which is the other side of, of profit. And um, I, I think, because I've seen this a long time and even before I was born, um, history has repeated itself around financial crises and headlines. It's the same thing over and over. Then legislation will pass, but it's never enough. So there, 
I'm not predicting or wanting a major catastrophe, but likely that's what it will take. Right. And in the meantime, my book recommendations uh, will provide the path. Yeah, the little, right path. little tailwinds there to help us get there faster. <laughs> um, yes. Let's dive into the, so I was reading the introduction and you tell this really uh, crazy story. And I was like getting a cold sweat reading it because like I was feeling like, oh man, that must have felt so uncomfortable uh, on it. Tell us that story and tell us how that ended up being really a good picture of what you end up kind of tackling in the book. Is this the, the very opening with the meeting with the, yeah, the auditor? The auditor. And then you say first, second, third. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this, I mean, you did it. So anyways, not to uh, wreck the story. Go ahead. Go ahead and tell us that. No, no, that's okay. So, so it is, it's a, a Zoom meeting because it presumes that we're still in a pandemic, which we still are uh, to a degree with the, with the, uh, the variants. And it's a closeout meeting with the chief auditor and the chief auditor wants to know, okay, are we, can I now as the chief compliance officer declare that we're independent? And I said, no, in three ways. One, because we're still being paid by the business. So think Wells Fargo around not being independent enough and therefore being suppressed and raising uh, issues all the way to management or the board. Second, in terms of um, just uh, having the budget or being controlled by the CFO and therefore we're hostage to the cuts um, and not being able to use um, the tools with artificial intelligence or, or robots and therefore we're incredibly inefficient, untimely and missing suspicious activities um, and not having access uh, to the board. Um, and therefore the board remains blind uh, like the allegory of the cave around only knowing what they're told, right. uh, either because the corporate secretary controls the agenda or the agenda is being dominated by every other topic other than the most important, which are cultural conduct and uh, compliance. Right. Um, so, you know, I'm sure they were hoping, somebody was actually hoping that you would say, yes, we're very independent, this is good to go. But to say that really kind of exhibited <laughs> a lot of courage. And so, you know, we're meant to be independent, we're meant to be uh, objective, and we're, we're meant to be truthful. And sometimes the social pressures in a conversation like that or a a big meeting like that can lead us to kind of shy away from that or have some reluctance to really stand up and say what we have to say. And I just thought that was such a great picture. And, you know, you just ran right at the, uh, the, un the uncomfortability to get to truth. And that's really yes. what our job is. You have this awesome quote in the book that says, our goal as compliance and ethics officers is to get management to understand this duality, that effective compliance leads to strategic success. I love that exactly. quote. It's so critical. And again, I spend so much time like thinking about this, trying to understand this. Why is that duality so hard to hold in the minds of people operating businesses? Uh, absolutely. And, and that's why you've probably heard me say before about culture meets strategy over breakfast, because they have to go hand in hand. And, and culture is driven by how compliant you are, because if, if firms or executive management or mid-management don't care about compliance because a check can be written or they're not accountable, that certainly shapes the culture and therefore ultimately can derail the strategy or more importantly, actually enhance the strategy because being compliant, having the right conduct and culture isn't unnoticed by regulators, by shareholders, by employees. Right. 
and you connect, you can actually maximize and multiply your returns, uh, not only for the short run, but also for the long run. They go really hand in hand. Yeah, they really do. And just to kind of uh, dumb it down for the econ heads, what we're talking about is really reducing the deadweight loss in the market that is driven by, um, you know, a uh, a lack of discretionary effort expended by the workforce. That's really what we're talking about. And that that deadweight loss is just going to increase as you know, people from our, our generation continue to prioritize impact, purpose, so forth, in the same hand as profit, right? Like we obviously wanna make profit, we want um, to be successful and so forth, but we wanna do it in the right way. And having a culture that actualizes that workforce and allows them to release those gifts and feel good about expending discretionary effort over and above that which would cause them to get fired, that's what all of that effort, all of that, that all just falls to the bottom line. It's a very simple yes. thing uh, when we talk about it in that, in that perspective. But when you get into the boardroom and you get all those complexities and all those relationships, it ends up kind of obfuscating the, the simpleness of this truth, you know? Absolutely. And, and dumbing it down, however, uh, however people interpret that is actually spot on because at the board level, at the management level, that probably doesn't want to hear it or doesn't have time. It's important to actually dumb it down in its most simple, simplest way. And that's why I also decided to write the book in one huge series of metaphors because it's the best way to explain or through stories and drawings because then people can relate. The board can relate. The community can relate. But most importantly, management will understand the consequences um, of their actions. So speaking of analogies, I love the catcher analogy. You alluded to it to, to it before. Let's flesh that out some more because I think it's a really great picture of the role that compliance plays, ethics and compliance plays on the field of business. This is the uh, baseball catcher? Uh-huh. So the, the book has a couple images, and I start out by talking about how boring baseball can be viewed from a, from a distance or for those that don't understand the, the game of baseball. But it's incredibly strategic with every pitch of, of, of the ball. But most importantly, you have eight out of the nine players on the field that are playing defense, uh, all facing the same direction, which is towards the batter. The batter is the level of focus, which is the risk. The batter is the risk. The catcher, on the other hand, is the one individual on the team that is facing out towards the field that sees the full field of play. He or she uh, is involved in every play, calls the, the, the pitches or the strategy, repositions the players knowing what the batter that's up at the plate uh, or the risk, how uh, they're going to uh, change the outcome of the game. Um, so the catcher is the chief compliance officer. That's the point of, of the chapter. Um, they're the ones in the dirt or the trenches, so to speak, uh, involved in every play, backing up every um, play to the infield for those of you baseball fans out there. Um, and and throws are the runner out, which is the emerging risk, so to speak, not anticipated always, and uh, and is the one that is tagging the, the the player at home. So he or she is the most important player. I know uh, everything centers around the chief compliance officer in my book, but it's because 
who are underestimated all the time, thrown under the bus too often times, um, and therefore needs to be understood as to how and where they fit into the game. And final point is oftentimes after they retire, they become the managers of the team because they understand all aspects of the game, the rules, and, and how to win. That's the most important thing, how to win. Yeah, it's one of, so I've heard people try to use uh, sports analogies with uh, compliance before. And, you know, somebody, I, somebody had said, oh, we're like the quarterback. And I was like, mm, doesn't feel, <laughs> this feels like so much better because of all those things you said. And, you know, uh, a catcher is this really unique position that, uh, you know, to your point, gets underestimated and gets sort of less credit for the role that they play. But on a championship team, they're oftentimes, you know, who kind of helped us get here. A lot of the guys exactly. on the team would be talking about that catcher because to your point, a good one can help direct things, can uh, really help move and coordinate. And uh, it's, just, it's just a great analogy and it helps to really frame out the fact that compliance in its essence or when it's unleashed really does touch all these different aspects of the business and should be part of all these plays from both a defensive and an offensive perspective. Exactly, exactly. They have to hit well too, exactly. That's right, that's right. Um, so my son is... Uh, in second grade and he is part of a Rubik's cube club at his school. So I really wanted to impress my son. And so I've been studying Rubik's cubes lately so that I could solve them. And he'd think his dad is really smart. You know, uh, <laughs> I love your Rubik's cube analogies. So I'm a big analogy guy. Uh, I love that, um, that Rubik's cube metaphor. And I'd love for you to kind of describe that metaphor in terms of how you've sure. experienced that as you've gone from all these different, you know, really interesting roles high pro and high profile roles at highly regulated organizations dealing with big challenges. How, you know, what does that analogy mean? And then you talk about kind of painting the sides of it. I'd love, I'd love to dive into that also because it's such a, you know, it sure. just paints the picture so well, you know. Absolutely. So one, uh, Rubik's cubes are not easy to solve. I mean, maybe they are for some, but they, they're really difficult because when you think you've aligned all the colors, then you turn the, the cube around and another side is completely misaligned. And COSO, the Committee of Sponsoring Organizations of the Treadway Commission, um, used that visual, I think, brilliantly to the extent that um, it epitomizes a complex organization or even a simple organization to the extent that you have divisions, you have legal entities, you have geographies, different types of clients. And so once a division thinks that they've lined it up or management at the top is, thinks that they've lined up uh, the cube and succeeded, something else is, has, um, has, has gone misaligned. Maybe it's a it's the ultimate whack-a-mole when you think you've popped uh, the mold down, something else pops up, but it's much more three-dimensional. And that's how com complex uh, organizations really are, is it's three or four-dimensional, multiple moving parts. Um, and um, it takes people, process, and systems to be aligned, which is another way of saying culture right. and strategy and compliance, uh, it's all connected. Now, painting the side of the Rubik's cube is a metaphor, but sadly also a reality to the extent that instead of trying to figure out the complexities to solve the puzzle, some people actually just paint the colors to, to superficially show regulators or themselves that they've solved 
the puzzle. When in fact, over time, probably in less time that they realize that paint fades and the reality is that there's a lot of problems underneath root causes uh, that were never solved because they didn't want to solve it or just wanted to kind of put throw things under the rug. That's it's another way of saying throw things under the rug. So what does that say about the culture of the organization? Not a very good uh, answer, I, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, and there's an inauthenticity there. And I think as we get more adept at <clears throat> detecting that inauthenticity, the value that that painting the side of the, Ru the Rubik's Cube has is way different than what we think it has. It actually has, has a negative value. And yes. um, it just paints a bad picture for you know auditors, for people, especially more so probably for people working in the organization that are <clears throat> living in this sort of, uh, this cognitive dissonance between these words that we're supposed to be sort of following and the actions that they actually see around them. People are gonna default exactly. to what they, what they see ir irrespective of what you know, they're told. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Totally. So, um, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please. So, um, I wanted to talk about this Cinderella thing. Um, I love that analogy. I think it's great. I'd love to dive into that, and I'd love to talk about your experience as you move to a company where you felt like you didn't, you you were no longer Cinderella. You walked in day one with the glass slippers on. So, talk to us about what that Cinderella <laughs> analogy is. Why that's so perfect for the chief compliance officer or the compliance function in most organizations. And what was that experience like when, you know, you had the, uh, you were, uh, you know, uh, not persona non grata like a lot of compliance people are. Sure. So for those of you that are either not familiar with Cinderella or more importantly, the metaphor I've used fairly often about CCOs being Cinderella, it's, it's about, compliance officers not being independent enough. And part of it is structural because they report into the general counsel, the chief risk officer, or someone other than the board or the CEO. So already there's a layer, uh, a ceiling, if you will, um, a glass ceiling that the compliance officer is not able to get their message through. And their message is often an escalation of something not right. Yeah. Um, culturally or, or, or an exception or an issue. That impacts their budget because they can't um, make, they don't have the authority ultimately or the seniority and, and businesses know that they can go around Cinderella to their boss, the general counsel or the chief risk officer to override the view of the compliance officer. So there's lots of structural problems in terms of the reporting line and ultimately they become thrown under the bus because they don't even realize that they're going to be thrown under the bus mm. for me there's two ways to be independent um, one is to have no one above you not the general counsel not the chief risk officer but in fact be a peer of them be on the executive committee be on the c-suite reporting directly into the ceo Whereas I also recommend reporting directly into the board, just like the chief auditor. And some will say, well, the chief auditor already reports to, to the board. Why should someone else? Well, the reason is because those are different risks, right. different issues, much more intangible for that matter. Um, so one is structural. Two is today, because it doesn't always happen overnight, is Compliance can still report into someone above, so long as they've got the autonomy and the seniority 
still be at the executive committee level, regardless of the administrative reporting line. Right. It's that authority that they, that they hold. I have been in organizations where I have reported directly into the CEO, and it is like compliance heaven. It is uh, like being a kid in a candy shop because you are up here. You are hearing real time the direct issues at the executive committee, and so therefore, if, using that analogy, Cinderella gets the go to the ball, which is the executive committee or the board of director. And the fairy godmother might be a, a, a director that actually listens and, and hears, and more importantly, holds management accountable based on that unfettered message that the compliance officer is having with the board and vice versa. So at that so company, independence is critical. Yeah. And at that company, what do you think it was like? I mean, I, I assume you didn't take take that job and say, hey, I, yeah, I'll take this job, but I need to be reporting to the CEO. I assume that that structure was kind of in place. Is that correct? Yes. So what yes. do you think? So again, you've worked at a ton of different companies and you've seen, you know, hundreds more. What was the root of that structure being in place? Like, was it a mentality thing? Was it a response to a best practice that somebody kind of thought up? What allowed that organization or what caused that or, or organization to create the circumstances for success for somebody new like you stepping in, into the role to really magnify your impact? So some of it uh, was already in place in terms of the structural reporting line, but the question then was, did they actually have the authority, the chief compliance officer, did they use that authority effectively? Because sometimes it boils down to the actual CCO and, and uh, whether they want that authority or not. Some actually fear that authority because it's even more exposure to them. But um, with some of these organizations, it was cathartic because there was some type of major issue. Um, so they had to actually make the authority real mm -hmm. um, in terms of budget, in terms of demonstrating to external stakeholders that the compliance officer and more importantly, compliance function not only had the authority, but was utilizing it by hiring more people, investing in right. better technology and demonstrating real results, not only within the compliance function, but across the organization. And there are metrics that show that. No more late audit findings. Um, actually closing out uh, regulatory issues, mm -hmm. no or less customer complaints, um, whistleblowing issues being actually investigated uh, with substance and escalated and analyzed to determine root causes and, and addressing those root causes. So there are tangible metrics, tangible results that demonstrate that one, independence matters and two, independence works. Um, so that's why I called the book Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I, uh, I gathered that. And uh, once it like once I kind of put that together, I was like, oh, I love the title. Um, that that need to declare it is also rooted in some courage. If you're standing in a situation where that that independence isn't there. What yes. what do people reach down into uh, to kind of you know, reinforce that courage and make them speak up about this? What kind of an angle or what kind of a persuasion angle would you recommend somebody take if they don't have that, you know, those circumstances for success that you just described? Sure. And, and, and we, I, I refer to the, the five C's, uh, 
because it does take a level of credibility of the, the compliance officer, particularly the chief compliance officer. It does take calm because when there's some level of crisis, it could be minor, it could be major, but particularly when it's major, if the chief compliance officer is calm, then others are calm because mm -hmm. that's leadership. That's, you know, if there's a burning fire, there's someone that is running into the fire and, and leading the way, not in, into the fire, yeah, but yeah. rescuing and leading them out. Uh, they have to be clear in terms of a storytelling way. They have to be uh, ultimately confident and most importantly, to your point, courageous. Now, what does it take to be courageous? Not falling subject to peer pressure. And I think of my school days, you know, everyone wants to, to do something and go out or whatever. And I, and I was not always popular because I, I would do my own thing. I didn't want to go out. I had to study or whatever. Um, it's equally, if not more intensely applicable for chief compliance officers that are subject to peer pressure and management pressure, uh, do the deal. I want to keep this account. Don't exit this account. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've seen in many, so many instances where um, it takes that courage, um, which is contagious, by the way. It is. Because then management is becomes courageous. Uh, the, the team becomes courageous to stand up to the business. They're people too. Right. And um, ultimately it takes that chessboard to understand here's what's going to happen if, if we keep going down this path or keep this client. But it takes courage to stick to your guns. It takes courage to help the whistleblower because the whistleblower is subject to even more scrutiny and retaliation. And if this whistleblower knows that they have support from the compliance officer, then others will stand up as, as well. And I love the chess analogy because chess is an interesting game. It's not like poker. Poker is a game of information asymmetry. I don't know what cards you're holding. You don't know what cards I'm holding. In chess, there's zero information asymmetry. All the information is right on the board. And yes. uh, we as, you know, we in the ethics and compliance game, you know, I think it's a great analogy that we need to be able to see those pieces, but not get sucked into the game. We need to be able to see the dynamics at play. We need to be able to see the deeds behind the words. We need to see uh, what gaps there are to see what people actually care about as per their, their actions and be able to navigate through that appropriately. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of like staying apolitical and how to kind of keep your, uh, stay true to yourself in some of these tumultuous environments that you're ultimately going to come in contact with if you stay in this game long enough? Sure. So independence also means objectivity. And confidence is not only self-confidence, but confidence by management, but most importantly by employees, that there's an objective voice or person to go to. And that's why oftentimes, if not all the time, Compliance is expected to have the and, and manage the integrity hotline as one example, um, because they're viewed as the independent party that will identify um, from anonymous or not whistleblowers that raise issues in compliance as opposed to other functions that are extensions of management, the first line of defense, which some will view legal, in fact, as, as a first line of defense. Um, so compliance has to be viewed as um, one understanding 
the pieces of the board, the dynamics between different pieces, that, that knight versus the bishop. And if I make this move, how will that impact the rook, so to speak, or the, the queen? The point being, that's the politics, that's the dynamics. And compliance needs to understand not only uh, what will happen if this move occurs or this whistleblowing investigation is carried out and the ripple effect it'll cause, but more importantly, see it through from start to finish, continue to support the employee or employees, shield them where and what they can do with respect to retaliation, which is only growing yeah. uh, quite blatantly, frankly. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where the objectivity that's where being apolitical is critical to reinforce that objectivity and independence. Yeah, and if you can create this little pocket of sort of apoliticalness, whether that's on your team or whatever, to your point, it is contagious. And if you can have that confidence that you're standing on something uh, that's rooted in integrity or the right thing, those can also be reinforcements to pursue and continue on the path that you're on, you know? Yes, You talked a little totally. bit, you talked about clarity, the importance of storytelling. Um, and you give this story in the book of you stepping into this new program. I think you were brought in to kind of like whip it into shape and scale it to the next level. And the first thing you did is say, Hey, give me the last kind of year, you know, the four, the last four like quarterly reports and they dropped a bunch of phone books on your desk. And <laughs> you made the joke that they looked like ransom notes. Talk to us a little bit about that story. Talk to us how that way that that compliance function was ostensibly presenting themselves to the other you know, stakeholders in the organization, how that probably didn't do them any favors and how you were able to, through storytelling or, you know, whichever angles you took, you were able to kind of reframe compliance as a role within that company. Sure. So oftentimes when uh, I'd be recruited in, I'd be external going into and inheriting not only a staff, but also the culture of the organization. And oftentimes I'd be brought in because a company probably got into some form of trouble. Um, and that's really what I like to do is re-engineer compliance programs to enable growth, but they can't because they haven't been re-engineered yet. So one of the first things I like to see is what is reported to the board, what is reported to management, and how does compliance itself manage itself? And it's through its data and its, its reporting. So as, as you appropriately say, uh, described, they were like phone books. I called them bricks in the book to the extent that they were, you know, 300 pages, uh, no story, completely just random in terms of bullets put together at the 11th hour by my compliance team because they had to. And the way they had to was just copying and pasting other management reports that they probably had to put together. Then um, the net result was just something completely inarticulate. So there's the expression, trash in, trash out. But yeah. the challenge is whatever's in that report, regulators, prosecutors are going to say, aha, mm. the firm knew something happened. Yeah, but it was buried in those bricks. It was on page 287. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the board is then deemed to know, management is deemed to know, and if there's something wrong, that there was some smoldering uh, brush fire that is in multiple locations, it's actually called a symptomatic issue or a root cause that 
my own team at the, in the early days didn't even realize because the left hand and the right hand weren't talking with each other or they were competing against each other within compliance or didn't care. And then therefore management didn't know, didn't care, or ultimately was viewed as neglectful, which I talk about later in terms of my recommendations about neglect. But the board is deemed to know if that one word or that one sentence is buried in that brick of report. Right. So your job as a chief compliance officer is to sort through all this stuff going on and tell somebody what, you know, tell somebody who's not swimming in that pool all the time what the temperature is. You got to tell them what matters yes. and what doesn't matter. How difficult was it to get your team that you took over to digest this new sort of more boiled down, uh, more thoughtful approach? And how tough was it to get them to look at, you know, I don't know, was it a materiality lens? Like, what was it uh, that turned the light bulbs on that allowed you to, you know, presumably by the next quarter, you, you guys weren't dropping bricks on the board's, you know, lap? Part of it was messaging, my own messaging to management. So for me, it was translating that 300-page brick into my own words. So it took upfront uh, understanding and experience on my part as to, what's really being said in this 300 pager and how do I distill it down to 10 pages with color coded heat maps around uh, what's the most important risk? What are the top five or top 10 risks? And I would explain to the board that this is iterative because, you know, I'd say the side of my mouth, you know, behind the scenes, it's just a piece of doo-doo around <laughs> what's all that information. But um, they like the storytelling. So it's it's positive feedback back that I could give to my team as to, okay, if you structure your own divisions reports this way, you'll actually get your message across. So it, again, became contagious around what and how to tell a story and why the board needs to know, and most importantly, what actions need to be taken. Because our job is not just to raise the issues, but more importantly, what's what are we doing about it? Right. What's management can do about it around accountability? It always goes back to accountability. Who owns what, by when, and by who? Have you ever heard that saying from, I think it's uh, Albert Einstein that says like, you know, things should be explained in, you know, as simply as possible, but no simpler or something like that. Um, and in order for that to happen, you have to know what matters and what doesn't matter. And if there's anxiety around exactly. what matters and what doesn't matter, what I see people do, and I think these bricks are kind of an example of it, is like, well, I don't know what matters and what doesn't matter, so I'm going to just say, think everything matters. And then whatever right. does matter is sort of lost in this din of all this other stuff that doesn't. Um, it takes a certain, to your point, getting back to the five C's, it takes a, cer a certain confidence to say, okay, we're taking this section out because this doesn't matter. This is not a burning fire right now. Um, did that right. come from just your own, like that, do you think that that comes from experience? Like, how do you teach materiality is my question, I guess. Some of it needs to be um, firm wide in terms of the risk management definitions, the financial control definitions around what's material or not, because it can be something tangible. Mm -hmm. And I often like to uh, analogize compliance risks in reporting with financial risk in reporting, because each, going back to that Rubik's cube, each unit of an organization is like a subledger and it needs to roll up to a consolidated financial statement and have integrity. So it's that 
uh, trash in, trash out. Mm -hmm. If a financial statement has no integrity, then the rest of the organization doesn't either. If a compliance risk doesn't have integrity in terms of the output, and this is where data analytics becomes so important, um, then why should we believe right. the, the the boy crying wolf, so to speak, or not, or the boy being or get, or girl being mute if they're not saying anything? Right. Um, so it's the same uh, analogy to extent that there needs to be defined methodical definitions of what the risk appetite, in this case, compliance risk appetite should be, and then consistently apply those definitions. Then you have apples to apples. And if it's consistent with the broader operational or other risks from a definition point of view, then it doesn't matter if it's retail, wholesale, right. healthcare, uh, financial, Compliance risk is behavior, conduct, and the possibility of, of uh, just derailing in a really bad way. Um, let's get a little bit more tactical as we get toward the end here. Um, you present Young's vision and you present this compliance hexagon. I'd love to just spend a little, I mean, there's a lot of great information on it and I think you articulate it really well and it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's a simple framework. I mean, getting back to that, uh, that Albert Einstein uh, quote, it's not overly complex, but it seems to be comprehensive. So I'd love to hear what Young's vision is and dive into kind of this compliance hexagon and how that ends up nesting into this broader honeycomb. Sure, and well put. Uh, one, Young's vision, my wife said, God, you know, Eric, you sound such like such an egomaniac. Right, and you said, well, but I've earned I, it. I thought... I've earned it at this point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I thought, you know, it, it's not rocket science for one thing. So I thought, you know, hey, I'm a simple guy. I'll, I'll pro uh, provide a simple vision. And, and that is, you take the sentencing guidelines, you take the Fed's uh, approach to complex organizations and how to comply. And if you integrate those, uh, do the hokey pokey as well, and then um, uh, apply these principles, which are, that compliance is cyclical. And if you have elements, whether it be the sentencing guidelines, uh, which we all know, and that we will teach the board, by the way, um, then you can achieve an effective compliance program. But integrating the, the Fed uh, principles, which can apply to healthcare, energy, and mm -hmm. any type of company, uh, not just banks, and the sentencing guidelines, which apply across the board, as we've seen, that'll get you to a point, and that means achieving compliance. But empowered are still the CEO and the CFO that are still myopically looking at the short term, mm -hmm. looking to cut costs. So that only takes you so far, which is Young's vision. The purpose of the hexagon are the six recommendations to a clean and efficient organization, which is enlightening the board, taking the board out of their cave mm -hmm. by teaching them, whether it be the sentencing guidelines or conduct or other major pillars, um, and, and empowering uh, compliance through independence, as we've discussed, holding management accountable, which is the, the teeth behind uh, the hexagon, because then incentives are great, consequences are better. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because as other countries have, it'll make humans think twice before they act or not act. Right. They can't hide behind the check that's written. Um, 
whistleblowing and protecting them through legislation is another. Uh, I've talked about RICO statutes. Uh, I, I, I tend to get a bit draconian in, in some recommendations to provoke thought um, and hopefully some legislation. Um, transparency is, is critical uh, in multiple ways, including audit findings, um, labeling management uh, in terms of uh, potential criminal acts, mm -hmm. including those of negligence, um, which is a level that management today can hide from. I didn't know, or I've got multiple layers as we talked about before. So this hexagon then will clean an organization. And, and finally, as I describe, uh, you're only as good as your industry, mm -hmm. or you're only as good as your, your macroeconomic structure in which governments and private industry can partner to build monopolies. Mm -hmm. um, and it's through these monopolies that is actually creating more risk because it's blurring the lines across sectors so if you clean an organization one at a time with the I see what you're hexagon, then you actually are cleaning an industry and in an economic uh, or an ecosystem that creates a honeycomb. Now, it, unless one reads it, it won't make a lot of sense. And that's why I recommend people read it. But once they do, it'll make tons of sense around the risk to national security through cyber crimes. Uh, and that's why it's so important um, to address this sooner rather than later or well, ignore it. Uh, you can't ignore it. Well, it's a phenomenal analogy because, I mean, in in nature, I think the honeycomb is or the hexagon is like the most structurally uh, sound shape. Sound. And those nested together in, in a honeycomb, obviously, if that is an, is an industry that has you know, a bunch of composite companies that have gone through this process, then that's a way to kind of clean up that industry. And I think we've seen it at some level, you know, greenwashing aside in the, en in the energy sector over the last 20 or 30 years, right? Um, there's been a big sort of environmental push there and a lot of practices that have trickled out, to your point, to uh, vendors and third parties that are kind of barnacles on these larger ships that are these, you know, massive oil and gas companies. Um, I, uh, man, I just, uh, I love this uh, hexagon. I think it's so simple, so, um, it's so elegant. And, you know, you do spend a bit of time talking about um, also investing in compliance resources. And so when there is a company that says, yeah, you know, we want compliance to be independent, you report to, you report up through legal. Uh, we want compliance to be unleashed, you know, we cut your budget. Uh, we want, you know, you guys need to manage these risks. No, you can't get those AI tools. It just creates this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy or sort of this vicious cycle where compliance exactly. is like they see opportunities, they can't execute those opportunities, something goes bad at the company, and it ends up blasting back onto the people who should have sort of known about it or something. Exactly, exactly. And then just to add insult to injury is they're the ones that are uh, blamed, yep. even though they're the ones that proposed and recognized the, the issue of the need and then they're viewed or positioned to be the one not solving the problem because right. the investment in the technology, which is much more difficult than said, because oftentimes, unless it's really starting with um, a whiteboard, um, is creating the feeds from existing front office systems um, and making sure there's integrity from start to end, 
of the data that's flowing from these front office systems to a data lake and having the right technology to analyze, filter out the noise, which oftentimes are the 98, 99% of the false positives uh, that create all the manual labor. And that's right. why oftentimes management says compliance is so expensive because they're working with 20th century tools yeah. and um, they can look at the past. It's kind of looking at uh, the Milky Way, which is actually, you know, many light years in the past, as opposed to predictive analytics right. of real time and anticipating issues before they happen. Yeah. Hey, here's a bad analogy. No, it's all right. That was a good one. Uh, here is a, a haystack. There's probably some needles in there. I need you to find them. Also, no magnets. You can't use any magnets. It's insane. <laughs> but that's, that's right. That's the reality people are living in. And there's this bizarre yes. thing, really. Um, as I was reading your book, I was just struck with this, that we, you know, through regulation and laws and the way our economy works, we've kind of created this circuit, you know, the, the system is particularly designed to generate the outcome that we're experiencing. And, you know, a corporation is a legal entity, but it's not really like you can't send a corporation to jail. There are people in, in an organization um, that, you know, it's kind of devoid of reality in the sense that in normal life, you're accountable for your actions, right? You reap what you sow. Yes. But in a business, yes. if you're an executive and you have this DNO insurance and you're sort of existing within this legal entity that's not actually really a thing uh, that nobody can really attack other than from, from fines, it creates this sort of bizarre wonderland or vacuum or something where there's no consequences of your actions. And so we shouldn't be surprised yep. to your point that the malfeasance that we see sort of, you know, ripping across our, our organizations is there. The consequences to your point, um, they don't seem, they don't seem to really match up with the reality that we're seeing. They don't, even if they're, you know, billions of dollars in, in fines and weeks and months of, of headlines, Companies know they can survive it. Most of them do. Some don't, of course, uh, but oftentimes, particularly if they have some backing of the government, and that's why there's so much focus on big tech and um, the fact that the information highway and net neutral ultimately means they get a level of, of free pass. Yeah, right. And we, we're seeing that every day. Um, so it'll be interesting to see one, what happens with them with respect to enforcement actions. But in the meantime, it's business as usual. Uh, there'll right. be a slap on the wrist. And what is not static are the risks, cyber criminals, right. the cryptocurrency unknowns, the blurring of the technologies. So going back to baseball, if I'm in the energy industry, I really know where the foul lines are and yeah. how many strikes and balls. But if the industry then blurs because of fintech or cryptocurrency, suddenly I'm playing football, basketball, and baseball all at the same time. I don't know what the rules are anymore. Right. I don't know what's compliant, and I don't know what my appetite should be in terms of making money, but more importantly, managing risk. Yeah, it's a very interesting time that we're in. I think your book came out at a great time. Um, I love it, if you can't tell. Where can people find where can people find it? Where can they buy it? Where can people learn more about you and read more of uh, your brilliance? Thank you, uh, first of all. And it's it's great working together uh, with you. Thank you. Um, 
One, I'm always on LinkedIn. Uh, you can always find me there. S second is uh, I've created a website um, under the banner Ethical Pebble. And the concept is um, pebbles are uncomfortable, but so is being ethical and, and compliant. You're not supposed to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so there's ethicalpebble.com and people can always reach me um, probably best through LinkedIn. The book is available on Amazon, either in Kindle uh, or in print copy. And um, I really look forward to people's feedback, whether good or bad. It's really to prompt discussion and legislation. Well, there's a lot to talk about in the book. Uh, the book is Decla Declaration of Independence by Eric Young. Get it on Amazon. Uh, elevate your program. Elevate your, there it is. Elevate your program, elevate your impact in your organization. Uh, it's got something for everybody in it, whether you've been in the game for 20 or 30 years or whether you're just thinking about getting into the compliance game. It'll give you a good taste of uh, the opportunity in it, uh, the challenges in it, the skill sets to build, and really has some great hacks to implement immediately to start changing uh, the course of your ship. So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Love your work. Thank you. Uh, love ha love thank you. Uh, getting to know you over Likewise. the last cu couple of years and just honored that you spend this time with us and share this, this, you know, this baby with the world. It's amazing. Thank you. Great to, to, to be here. Take care. Until next time.